we have been looking at about the importance of transferring the whole truth, the whole counsel of God, as the old biblical translation says, the whole counsel of God to the next generation. And that is probably the most important thing that you can do, and the one thing that everyone can do, and that is interceding on behalf of the next generation. And I'm not talking about a quick prayer here and there, or even praying when there is a crisis and there's a need and there's something urgent and you need to go. I'm talking about tenaciously, persistently, intentionally interceding until God answers. You say, Michael, how you can be confident that God will answer that prayer simply because the promises of God. I'm going to come back to that passage again, but let me tell you, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 makes it very clear that whenever there's one, one believing parent, one, I keep repeating, one believing parent, therefore, the next generation of that one believing parent as sanctified in that one believing parent. Translation, God has a plan for the lives of the children of even one believing parent. And let me ask you, if you have heard the name George McCluskey, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> you never heard of him. He was never on the evening news. He, there was no biography written about him and there is actually nothing that you probably read in books or know about him because he was a very ordinary man, very ordinary man. But he made an intentional, great investment of time for interceding for the next generation. He made the decision that he's going to spend one hour a day interceding on behalf of the next generation. That was a central focus of his prayer for that one hour, not just the next generation, but even the generations after that. Several years later, he had two daughters. As they grew up, they married men in, who are in full-time ministry, and they themselves were in full-time ministry. The two daughters had four daughters, two daughters each. The four daughters also married men who are in full-time ministry, and so they served with their husbands. In fact, they were full-time ministers themselves. And so he made a decision that he's going to go from 11 a.m. to 12 noon without interruption to absolutely seek God day after day without ever giving up that these generation, the third generation, even the fourth generation, would come to serve God in a marvelous way. Now, the four granddaughters now, are you with me so far, right? Have I lost you? So now it's four granddaughters, okay? I told you they're married, and they're also in ministry. Now, they had two sons. That's the first boys in the family, <laughs> believe it or not. Those two sons were cousins, decided to go to the same college, and they became roommates in that college. One of them decided to go into full-time ministry and become a very effective minister for the gospel. In fact, I remember him when I was living in California by the name of H.B. London. 
The other cousin absolutely rejected the pressure of going into full-time ministry. The family tried to put every sorts of pressure on him, but he refused to do it, and he became known as the black sheep in the family. After all, he's the first in four generations not to go into full-time ministry. The so-called black sheep of the family chose the field of psychology. Now, psychologists, don't get upset with me. You'll be happy in a minute. (laughs) And he eventually completed his doctorate, and he had a bestseller, a really world bestseller book. Today we know this black sheep in that family as Dr. James Dobson, who ministered to a lot, I mean, myriads of families around the world. Why am I telling you this? Because after all that, we have seen in the Scripture the importance and and how incredible the investment and the importance of the next generation is. We've seen that over and over in the last couple of messages. There can be no greater or more important thing you can do in embracing of your mission than to intercede on behalf of the next generation. The good news is you don't have to be a seminary graduate to do that. That's good news, right? You don't have to be a preacher to do that. You don't have to be an eloquent speaker to do that. All it takes is a commitment to intercede on behalf of the next generation. We saw in the last messages how the next generation, the Bible sees them as arrows in the hand of the Lord, as when they're set right. We saw from Psalm 128 that they actually like olive shoots, which can go for 20 generations. And the promise of God, all of the promises of God, are true even if you are not experiencing that now, even if you are going through the pain of experiencing your next generation still in the far country, even if you're going through the pain of watching them still in the wilderness, in fact, that should press you closer to the heart of God, not less. The pain should increase the intensity of your intercession, not decrease it. I have the privilege of leading many individuals to Christ one-on-one, probably my most effective ministry. One of those people, when he prayed with me to receive Christ, he was 60 years old, and he began to sob after he prayed and received Christ. And later on, he explained to me, he said, the reason I'm so broken is because I remember clearly growing up and even in college years when I come home, and then later on when I I was in the business world, I remember my mother daily prayed that I would become born again. I assured him that the Lord has already informed him in heaven. That particular businessman probably did more for the kingdom than hundreds of full-time ministers. Again, I'm telling you this for a reason. Please listen. Do not ever give up interceding for the next generation. Do not ever give up interceding for the next generation. One of the examples that impacted me greatly is a man in the Scripture who would not give up interceding for his next generation. And he got blessed out of his sandals 
because he's not only got the answer to his prayer, they experience salvation. So I want you to turn with me, please, to Scripture. John's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 46, all the way to 53. John's Gospel, chapter 4, 46 to 53. It is a story of a man who comes to Jesus interceding on behalf of his son. You know what I love about this man? I'm gonna, you're going to see it in a minute. I love about this man that he would not be dissuaded, he would not be deterred, even when his own expectations were not met. I've actually have done this trip from Cana of Galilee in the Nazareth area to Capernaum many times. And it's a long distance, even by bus. On a donkey, probably would have taken eight to nine hours. I'm telling you this as a background, because this is a father who most likely (laughs) had very little biblical knowledge. This is a father most likely did not know or had no clue of all the theological debates that were going on at the time. This is a father, perhaps, did not know a great deal about Jesus, that he is God of very God in human flesh. And yet, what he expressed here was an unwavering faith in the promise of Jesus, in the words of Jesus. He expressed an immovable faith in the trustworthiness of the words of Jesus. He exercised confident faith in the promise of Jesus. He totally believed Jesus on behalf of his next generation. And that is what I will be focusing on today. It is my prayer that this man will serve as a role model for us on behalf of the next generation. There will be a model of unwavering, tenacious faith on behalf of the next generation, regardless of how long it takes. And I was thinking about this indomitable faith of this man in contrast to a skeptical father, had a godly son, 18-year-old, and really loved the Lord, and, but the father was skeptical. He was cynical. He was a military man, but for some reason he became hedonistic, and he tried to dissuade, tried to hinder the faith of his 18-year-old. When the godly son came home from church one day, the father asked him, he said, what did you learn at church today? What did you hear today? He said, well, the young man said, Dad, you're a military man, so let me explain it to you this way. He said, Moses went behind enemy lines and rescued the Jews from Pharaoh. Moses had the Corps of Engineers build up pontoon bridges. And after the people crossed over, He sent bombers, (laughs) and they blew up the bridge. And Egyptians' tanks, all that were following them, they drowned. And the father stopped him and said, no, wait, 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 wait a minute, son. He said, did he really say that? He said, no, but if I tell you what he said, you wouldn't believe it. (laughs) Someone said, it is hard to believe because it's hard to obey. Are you with me? It's hard to believe because it's hard to obey. Himirat, please. The glorious thing about the Christian faith is God is the one who gives us faith to believe. God is the one who gives us saving faith. That is a gift of God. 
But then, on top of that, if you ask Him, He will give you daily faith. If you ask Him, whenever you ask Him, He will give you faith to believe in His promises daily. A faith that will not quit interceding. A faith that will never give up. A faith that is willing to trust God regardless of the visible circumstances. A faith that takes God at His Word and never, never, never let go. Reminds me of the old-timer who wrote the following words. Let me read them to you. Pray on when rough and dark your pathway, and you cannot see the light. When every spark of hope is vanished, and bright day has turned into night, pray on, for God doth certainly hear you, noting well each sent request. Pray then in faith, truly believing that He always gives you His best. This man in John chapter 4 comes to Jesus, like so many of us, out of crisis faith. I think not all of us, I know that, but some of us, when we come to Christ, was a crisis in our life or some issues or something going on, and we in desperation turn to Christ. And you know, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. The Lord will honor that crisis faith. But the problem is we dishonor God when our faith stays in that crisis mode or only come to God whenever there is a crisis. That's dishonoring to God. (laughs) Beloved, listen to me. There can be no doubt that God does not look down or despise or reject crisis faith. But it is dishonoring to God when we stay in a crisis faith, that every time we get into a crisis, we develop that faith. God often answers crisis faith prayer in order that may encourage us to go from strength to strength, to get to higher levels of faith, to move on, graduate to the next step of faith to go from crisis faith to contagious faith. And that is why I want to show you five steps that have taken place in the life of this man and that they ought to take place in our lives. Because when you go from crisis faith to contagious faith, there are three other steps in between. And so I want to share them with you very quickly. It began, his faith began with a crisis. It's a crisis faith. But secondly, it went to continuing faith. And then thirdly, we see it blossoming into confident faith. And fourthly, it leads to confirmed faith. And finally, we see it here, this father's faith become contagious. As I said, most of us, when we become serious intercessors on behalf of the next generation, we come with a sense of urgency. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. God uses these circumstances to draw us to Himself. God responds to this old King James Bible says, importunities. God graciously uses these baby steps of faith to take us to the next step of faith, to the next level of faith, to the next stage of faith. Look at verse 46. A nobleman, that is somebody from the royal household. He's in the king's palace. A nobleman come in desperation. 
This man is a member of the king's courtiers. This man, no doubt, given his position, he had lots of money, lots of prestige, and lots of influence. But his money, prestige, and power could not help him. He needed a supernatural intervention. He recognized that nothing his God can help him in his crisis. Thankfully, this crisis situation led him to a budding faith in Jesus. The most amazing thing about our Lord is that He welcomes this type of beginner's faith. He welcomes it. This man implored Jesus. This man besought Jesus. This man urged Jesus. You see it in his voice. This man persisted in intercession with Jesus, even when on the surface it appears, and you'll see it very clearly in the Scripture, for on the surface it appears that he's being rebuffed by Jesus. But I want you to remember this rebuff is not intentional focusing on this man. Now, there is a large crowd of people, if you read it in the context, there are a large crowd of people. And when they see somebody like this, recognized by his clothes, people were making way making way for him to come to Jesus. So he he comes to Jesus. There's a large crowd, and Jesus was speaking to the crowd, not necessarily to this man specifically, even though he was included. Verse 48, unless you people, (laughs) unless you people see miracles and signs and wonders, you will never believe. Here's a biblical fact. Listen to me. I know many of you testify to this, as I do. If we are to grow in faith, we must be willing to accept the test of faith. There are many people who wanted faith without being tested in their faith. But it's like a school. You cannot make it to college unless you graduate from high school. There is a test, the SAT. You have to take some tests in order to graduate. And the same thing in the spiritual school You have to pass the test of faith. There's always a test. Always a test. There can be no testimony without a test. And the test of faith is designed by God to reveal to us, He already knows, is to reveal to us the level of our faith. It is designed to reveal to us the seriousness of our faith or lack thereof. It shows us if our crisis faith willing to grow into a higher level and a higher level and a higher level of faith? Or do we just want the crisis to be over? Get me out of this, God! And when he does, we say, hey, what did you do for me lately? It is designed to test if we have a fleeting faith or a continuing faith. Do we just have a temporary faith or a permanent faith? Beloved, please listen to my heart. Listen to me. Believing God for the next generation, trusting God to do great things with the next generation, totally believing God to use the next generation, He must move us from crisis faith to continuing faith. You see it clearly in this nobleman. He went from crisis faith to continuing faith. You say, how? Look at verse 48 again. Jesus puts him off, as it were, but he was not going to be deterred. <laughs> I said, he is not taking no for an answer. 
He's not going to give up. He's not going to just say, okay. How does he respond to that rebuttal? How does he do that? Verse 49. You people, unless you see… Fa-. I said, sir, just come with me. <laughs> I'm not listening to anything else. I'm just come with me. 49. Verse 49. What is he saying? He's saying, my faith is in who you are. My faith is not only for what you can do, but of who you are. And that is why his faith goes from crisis faith to continuing faith to confident faith. Look at verse 50. Jesus said, you go, your son lives. I want to tell you, here's a use of imagination. Had this man's faith stayed in a crisis faith mode? Had this man's faith was merely a shallow faith, just trying to get what he wants to get? He would have said, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. Aren't you going to come with me and see the boy? Aren't you going to come and lay hands on him and heal him? How can I be sure that this is the case? How do I know that this is really the case? My boy is long, long away from here. Capernaum is right there on the lake, and we're here in Nazareth County. (laughs) It's a long way away. But he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. And the reason he did not is because his crisis faith moved forward to being continuing faith. Now it is confident faith. It's confident. Not arrogance. There's a world of difference between confidence and arrogance. Beloved, confident faith takes God at His Word. Confident faith takes God at His Word. Confident faith fully trusts in the promises of God. Confident faith believes without evidence. Confident faith does not doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the daylight. You remember when we looked at Psalm 128? The promise is very clear. The Word of God makes it very clear. For the person who fears God, obeys God, walks with God, the next generation will be like olive shoots. Not maybe or possibly or… No, no, will be. Then you have to take God's Word for it. You have to trust the Word of God and the promises of God. And you hold on to it with all of your being. Now, I testify to you, and I told you this before, that I hung and I continue to hang everything in my life on the promises of God. And so can you hang on the promises of God regardless of where your next generation actually are right now, wherever they are spiritually. Because you know and I know that doubt is the enemy of faith, right? (laughs) Doubt is the enemy of faith. And doubt tempts all of us, including your pastor. Doubt tempts all of us. But doubt needs to continuously being uprooted like a noxious weeds. (laughs) How? By trusting in the Word of God, by taking hold of the promises of God, by dropping anchor on the promises of God. You know, 
back in my old life, when I used to belong to an apostate denomination, I used to hear speakers that come, these famous clergy. They come from all over the place and speak to the clergy in these clergy conferences. And these speakers would say, embrace your doubt. Doubt is part of life. And they speak pontificately. (laughs) God, use living doubt. One time I honestly thought, I doubt I went to hell. (laughs) I don't mind telling you. James 1, 6 and 7 said that person who embraces doubt is unstable in all of his ways. Listen to me. The reason there are so very few Christians, statistics says about 3% of Christians tithe, is because they doubt God's provision. They doubt that God is going to take care of them in the coming years or in the coming year. Many years ago, someone said to me, faith is like a toothbrush. Everyone should have their own (laughs) and use it regularly. They should never use somebody else's. My friend, I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God, if you're a God-fearer, if you're walking daily with God, if you're faithful with God, then you can exercise faith on behalf of the next generation. Amen. Amen. Give God praise, not me. Give God praise. But here comes something that is of uttermost importance, interceding for the next generation, but we must also model faith to the next generation. We must model that faith, because if we model faith, sooner or later, they will develop their own faith. When they see us go from crisis faith to continuing faith to confident faith, sooner or later they will experience confirmed faith. This member of King Herod's inner circle believed God for the next generation. He trusted God's Word without visible evidence. He couldn't see it. He took Jesus' word for it. He trusted in Jesus' promise. So much so that he did not rush home that day. I'm going to show you how I get this. I don't know where he spent the night, but I can promise you he slept like a baby in a strange bed. Because he spent the night in Cana of Galilee. He didn't go to Capernaum. Earlier I told you about God's promise in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, 15, and 16, that non-believing children of the one who's a believing parent are sanctified or set aside for God to do work in their life. This means that as you intercede, your next generation, as you pray for the next generation, you can rest at peace. You're not anxious. You're not worried. You're interceding. You're not giving up. But you're at peace. Somehow, somewhere, sometime, God is going to keep His Word. God is going to keep His promises. So you rest in peace. Question, you know why this is really important? Do you know why it's important? Listen to me. Because it has nothing to do with who I am or who you are or who anybody else is. It has nothing to do with who we are. 
important as we are to the heart of God, has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the character of God. And you see it throughout the Scripture. God accepted Abraham's intercession on behalf of Lot and his family. Uh, God blessed Pharaoh because of Joseph. God accepted Moses' intercession on behalf of the stiff-necked, rebellious people. And God blessed Solomon because of the prayers of David. God answered Hannah's prayer and blessed her with Samuel. And I can go on and on and on and on. I wrote a book on this prayer of people of old. Look at the text with me, please. When the nobleman went home the next day, it's the next day. You know how I know that? Going to see it. The servant met him, probably gate of the city. They probably stayed at that gate all night long, waiting for the boss to come home. (laughs) They were probably saying to each other, the boss man is not going to believe what happened. The boss man is not going to believe the good news that we got for him. The boss man will probably want to see for himself. Oh, wait till he gets home and he sees for himself what happened. The servants probably could not sleep that night, but the nobleman did. So when he came home, he only asked one question. Just one question. One question. No. No, it was not. Let me see for myself. Where is the boy? No. You know what the question was? What time did this happen? What time did this happen? What time was the boy healed? Listen, I'm using sanctified imagination here, okay? (laughs) Boss, what difference does it make? Oh, it makes all the difference in the world. Because this is not a coincidence. This is not a happenstance. This is not an accident. This is not luck. It happened the very second the promise was uttered from the lips of Jesus. Christ's faith gave way to continuing faith, which developed into confident faith. Now it becomes confirmed faith. And my beloved friends, confirmed faith must must, must, must lead to contagious faith. If you seek God and God answers you and you keep your mouth shut and you don't testify, think about it. Verse 53, they told him, of course, yesterday. That's how I know it was the day after that he didn't come home right away. When the nobleman confirmed The moment of the miracle, the Bible said, so he and his entire household, they all got converted. His testimony and his witness to his household, that including all the servants and the slaves and the children, the grandchildren, everybody's in the household, became believers. That's the word of testimony. The Samaritan woman, she came and she said, come and see A man who told me everything about my life. Testimony. They all came out. Testimony. Testimony. They won the victory with the Word of God and the Word of their testimony. If I learned anything about the Word of God, 
is I know this. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. God loves to work with multiple generations. God loves to bless whole households to be used and blessed by God. And that is why believing on behalf of the next generation is not an option. It's not an option. And you see it's right the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, but you see it in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 10, the very first Gentile, it was a captain in the Italian army. He was Italian. He was not Jew. This is the first Gentile ever to believe and be redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, Cornelius. The Bible said in Acts 10, Cornelius and his whole household believed and were baptized. You go into Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas were singing in the prison, and there was an earthquake, and the jailer thought, oh, the people are going to escape, and then the government's going to kill me, so I was about to take his own life. And Paul says, stop, we're all here. And then he said, what must I do to be saved? And the apostle Paul shares with him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible said, Acts 16, the Philippian jailer and his whole household. Can you say whole household? <laughs> Believed. You go again, Acts 16. Lydia, a businesswoman, when she came to the Lord, her whole household. God loves to work with multiple generations. The question is, will you covenant to at least intercede for the next generation? Lord God, my heart is filled with gratitude and thanksgiving to you. Your amazing grace, your persevering, and your unending love that you pursue us no matter how far we run, and you bring us back to the fold. And Lord, as I lead these, your precious children, in prayer— on behalf of the next generation, I pray, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, to hasten the day, hasten the day in which we see the next generation of this church rise up, and they become the giants that we believe you want them to be. Father, I pray that we would be like John the Baptist, my generation be willing to say, he must increase and I must decrease. Father, I pray that you would bless the families of this church, and you bless its single people in this church, that they will see it to invest in others. Father, I pray every person, whether widows or widowers or single married grandparents, parents, regardless of who we are and what we are doing, Father God, that every one of us can begin to intercede. And so that the dark things that we're seeing it today be turned into light for the glory of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.